0: Hey.
1: Hi, how are you, Michael?
0: I'm good, Tim. It's good to see you.
1: You too. Hi, everyone. My name is Tim. Welcome to the All Out Coach Podcast. This is your show in which we extend our boundaries of our roles, of our abilities, and we transgress differences between people. Today, I have a guest who is a visionary, who's an entrepreneur, and who's going to inspire us to stretch ourselves and lift others That is as I always say, on All Out Coach. His name is Michael Rubin. He has a degree in neuroscience from Brown University. He's an entrepreneur, an executive at Netflix, Lucasfilm. He's worked on post-production roles with great directors like Bernardo Bertolucci in Sheltering Sky, CBS miniseries as well. He's a writer and someone who inspired me recently because uh, he has an important vision that is unique. And I think he's going to share his stories. And so I'd like to welcome you, Michael Rubin. Welcome, Michael (laughs) Rubin. Thanks,
0: Tim. Thanks for having me on. (laughs)
1: Uh, I'd like to start by taking us through your uh, career. What are some decisions that you've made that are most memorable, that were turning points? And how do you look back on them today?
0: Wow. Um, Well, I think that I've always had a career that w- had something to do with creativity. Um, it, and that uh, when I started out, I thought I wanted to be a photographer. Like when I was a kid, that was sort of my dream. Uh, that and winning a Nobel Prize. I don't know why those were the things in my head, but that's what I thought would be a great life. Um, my parents urged me as much as I was sort of awarded in photography and it was my I was really good at it. They wanted me to kind of pursue other stuff and follow photography just as a hobby. They, they said that you, know, you should do art because it's something you love and not as a career. And so um, I ended up inexplicably out of college at Lucasfilm. And it was really sort of a fluke. I had joined, I had been interested, I mean, as you said, I'd studied neuroscience and computers were a new thing. And I always loved sort of you know, marketing, but I didn't really know the term. I understood business at a very superficial level. Uh, but joining, joining the company, I thought I was joining what would become Pixar. I I thought they had been experimenting with, um, or not experimenting. They were using the Pixar image computer, which was what Pixar was, um, to do medical imaging. They were stacking up uh, slices of CT scans and forming 3d volumes. And I thought that would be amazing. So literally I spent a year trying to talk my way into Lucasfilm. They didn't have any entry-level jobs. They had no internships. They didn't do things like that, but I literally spent a year sending off letters and trying to maneuver. And what I ended up with was a summer job there. But what, what, when I first got there and I spent the entire summer trying to figure out how not to get fired at the end of the summer. Like that was my goal. But even that was a pivot because I thought I was going out to work on Pixar. But by the time I drove from Providence, Rhode Island to San Francisco, Pixar was already sort of fumbling and pivoting. And the VP who had hired me moved off of the Pixar project onto the droid project, which was introducing technologies into Hollywood specifically for digital audio and film editing. So somehow that's what I ended up doing. You know, I kind of found myself at the dawn of what became nonlinear editing, digital post-production. So I I would certainly say that kind of flexibility is useful, you know? Um, And and so I've had a series of jobs over the last 40 years where they alternate between doing things for me, whether it's writing a book, or um, doing a startup of some kind where I'm betting on my own ideas. And then I sort of fall back and punt. Like I go back and like, it's if it worked, that's great. But if it didn't work, I would go try to, I don't know, rebuild my, my both money and ego by getting a regular job somewhere. Like Adobe was a, a good example of that. Or Netflix was even an example of that. Those were, Netflix even at the time in 2000, in the early 2000s, was a startup, you know, they just done an IPO in 2004, maybe, and uh, three 2003. And, um, you know, so a small company, even though that's IPO, still felt about right. Um, so yeah, I've I've tried to balance those things of serving myself and filling my the coffers in my in my soul, you know,
1: you've been able to reinvent yourself and kind of remix yourself at various different stages. It seems like of your life, right? Which yeah. we need to do. You know, you I,
0: honestly, like growing up, I was always impressed by Madonna. Like I didn't really listen to her music that much, but she, every time I'd kind of turn around, she was a different character. Her music changed, her personality changed as she was getting older. And I, that inspired me to, not be so rigid. I wasn't trying to build a platform and build on that platform and just keep going further and further in that path. I wanted to go as far as I could go in a certain direction and get a good view from that platform and then go start another one. Try again. Mm -hmm. Just try to keep having new careers. And as something that you mentioned, when you move industries, as I've done a number of times, it's almost like, like Superman coming to Earth. Like you have different gravity on Krypton. You have different issues there. He's a normal guy on Krypton, but you come to earth and he's a Superman. I felt that um, when I came out of technology the first time and went into retail, nobody in retail understood the way technology companies innovated and iterated on products. And so it felt like I had magic powers in retail to develop things and try stuff without any of the baggage that the industry brings to it. So I really encourage people to, to if, if it's possible, to have one kind of job, one kind of business expertise, and then see what happens when you pick that up wholesale and take it to some other field and apply it in there. It uh, Yes, it's awkward because you're a, a novice, but you also have the sort of magical ability to see through walls. Mm-hmm. That's what I found.
1: Did you have mentors, particular mentors throughout these different, you know, memorable turning points that helped you make those steps decisions a little bit easier because you had to transition, right? Um,
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I had mentors all along. I think I've always made friends with sort of senior people at the companies I was mm -hmm. with Um, Mm -hmm. and it was super helpful. I don't think they helped with career advice per se, Mm-hmm. But it really, a friend of mine called me a postmodern jester. It was an expression that she used because the Kings, the CEOs, the, these generally older men, um, I think enjoyed having young, sort of ambitious, smart kids around who like respected what they did and wanted to learn from them. And I think everyone wants to teach. And I gave them an opportunity to just unload And almost in every job I had at Lucasfilm, at CMX, at Netflix, whatever, the senior people always felt comfortable just like after work, sitting down, slouching down in a big, easy chair in their office and them unloading about their day, what they were dealing with. And, you know, I think because I was so apolitical and, you know, non-threatening, they didn't mind just telling me stuff. And I learned a lot just listening.
1: I see. You made, you mentioned some key words there, apolitical and non, not threatening, which I think a lot <laughs> of us can learn from in many different you know, fields. You've had an illustrious and vivid, very diverse career, and uh, you are a visionary. So how do you persuade people to take a look into the future without an immediate reward in sight? How have you been able to do that?
0: It is hard. And I think you need to tailor those sort of the vision you paint, the story you tell for Mm -hmm. everybody, and it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, Some employees, can not you can't paint the big future vision. They can't see that far. So you have to have sort of more near term uh, objectives that they can understand. We're going, you know, at Netflix, for instance, um, the company was rallied around streaming in the future, but that was future. And all that was ever said at Netflix was um, get big on DVDs. Like I was there in the DVD era primarily, just as we were made the decisions to go into streaming. But we knew we would never matter in streaming if we couldn't get big on DVD. So for most people in the company at the right level, they're focused on DVD stuff. You know, you're know, you not telling them that we're going to be dominant player in streaming or even any player in streaming uh, we were just getting big on DVD. So that's an example of sort of picking a focus that we can rally around. I, I don't think everyone can take a very long view. I think it's hard, It's a certain kind of person who can see that far. I was surprised that the guys who started Pixar, Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith, you know, when they first started inventing things, computer graphics and the alpha channel and texture mapping, all this stuff that was invented, mm-hmm. They knew, I mean, Catmull always wanted to make a film, an animated film on a computer. And he knew it was 30 years before it could possibly be done. And he just felt like, well, we got a lot of things to do before we get there. And so it wasn't like a 30-year project. It was like lots of little interim successes. and, And honestly, you need to be able to adjust. It's great to have long vision, but the world changes dramatically. And I choose... Not to see events as having um, good or bad associations. A, a company that goes out of business, or m- my building burns down, or I had, you know, I had a stroke at one point. Like things happen that you can't plan for, and it happens in business as well. That uh, some new law is passed, or some new market yeah. opportunity. So it's good to have a kind of a plan, but at the same time, you really need to work with what you've got. As a film editor, they, we would always say, you know, the director's out there on location shooting and they get all this material for you. But at the end of the day, as the film editor, you can only edit with the stuff that's handed to you. You get given this material and you got to tell a story out of it. And it might be the same as the script. It might be what the director wanted, but it also might not be possible. And there's other opportunities and staying sort of tuned to that is important.
1: Yeah. Reed Hastings, at one point, he went to Blockbuster and he wanted a partner, right? And Blockbuster just yeah. rejected him, right? Yeah, he yeah. He must have been there during that time when it was DVD, like you mentioned. So were there some failures or were there some growing pains uh, that you recall that you could tell us a little bit about?
0: There were tons. I mean, Netflix was a series of hits and misses and it was not making money and it was very sketchy. And the stock price reflect that reflected that in the early 2000s. It rarely got over 20. You know, it just sort of bounced around in there, and and it was highly volatile. I saw, a, I mean, I witnessed a number of things at Netflix that totally changed my outlook on business. And I, 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 but and some of that was like as a product architect, like that was my job, was a product person. But watching Reed build the company, he a number of things happened that sort of profoundly changed me and and one of them and there's a couple examples of it was um, the company's ability to and really it's read but the company's ability to um, cut cut change direction uh, like jig and jag you know and one example was um, there was a, a move to open we were still in the DVD business we had less than 5% of the American households as members, we had a subscriber count of about 2 million or 3 million. And there was a decision made to, to open up in the UK that they were starting to have DVDs available. I think Amazon had bought Love Film or something. And I don't remember the specifics, but there was a plan afoot to go to to the UK and offices were secured and a team was assembled and people started moving to the London. I mean, it was in process. And even Reed had like started to enroll his children in schools in the UK, like that's how far it was going. And then there was that kind of an epiphany that was like, we don't, we have, we only have 5% of the US market and we're going to open on another front. You know, why are we doing that? That's cr- And as quickly as that happened, and in spite of all of the momentum going that direction, they pulled the plug. They just stopped and said, we need to get big in the US before we start spreading into other countries and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they did it again with the Netflix box where a box was made, we'd been debating for years how to get streaming done. Like, are we going to a a box with a hard disk in it where where we download to it and then it plays, which is what Mm -hmm. everyone, you know, our audience were, a lot of them were business travelers and they needed to download it to their computers. And so there was a strong argument for that. And then there was another strong argument for making it very inexpensive. It only streams, there's no hard disk in it. And that's what we should be doing. And the decision, we, we brought in a guy who had built Roku and he invented the replay device and, and, and he brought his team over and they were building the Netflix box. And there was literally a box and it said Netflix on it. It was a prototype. Everyone in the company had one. We were testing it out. The marketing was underway. They were about to launch in the US. And then there was the re- realization that like, We shouldn't be competing. We don't want a box out there. Then we're competing with everyone else who has boxes. We want everyone, it to be everywhere. And as fast as the like two weeks before the launch, they completely killed it, totally turned it around, spun Roku out as its own company. They gave him the, the technology. Netflix was actually a partner in Roku for a while, but it didn't want to be. It it, right. dis, it 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 dissociated itself as quickly as possible, and Roku went along its way, and Netflix began setting up the sort of the Netflix inside, and every DVD player, every television set had this stuff in it. So I watched, in any other company, you go down a path a certain distance, and you just feel like you need to keep going, yeah. and yep. success is hanging on after others have let go, yeah. and- that and and Netflix was very analytical and very dispassionate and was able to say, no, that's no longer the right decision. We've changed our mind. We spent what we spent, but now we're going to go in the right direction. And that's always the way I think of business decisions. I think most people labor over decisions to a point of absurdity. You know you'll never have perfect information it doesn't exist you can't know so at some point you've got a bunch of information as malcolm Gladwell would say you've got like the hunch you're you're, you know you you have a sense of what all of this is saying and then you just go some make a decision with what what you've got the best decision you can and if you turn turn to decide it's wrong you make another decision later on. But yeah. the danger is not making a decision, is sitting there and gathering more information and asking more people. And you can miss the opportunity or you can screw the whole thing up by, by that. So I, that's always been the way I, I deal with stuff. And I never beat myself up over, over bad old decisions. Like I did the best I could given the circumstances and, and being able to forgive yourself. Like if that was a totally horrible decision, uh, A lot of people will sit there and just, you know, hang their head and feel like I'm no good. I made a bad decision. I screwed up. And it's often surprised people who I'm very close with who feel like, I can't believe you just forgive yourself for that crappy decision, you know? And I feel like I did what I could, I, I, I. (laughs) <laughs> and now I'm going to make another decision. That wasn't right.
1: You know? Yeah. It's important not to make the same mistakes, right? Uh, no, you should uh, be uh, learn. You've got to be learn from the, former yeah.
0: yeah. The yeah. other thing that happened at Netflix um, was um, many companies do a lot of testing and they iterate and that's <laughs> a, sort of a, a common thought in, in business. And uh, they do little iterations, you know, we'll make it just bit by bit better and better as we go. And in some sense, if you're a mature product, there's nothing really wrong with that thinking. But if you're a startup or you're a new product or you're trying to do big things, that's, you'll never get there. You'll die with iteration. And so at Netflix, we were obligated to make, at, at the director level, we were obligated to make like a million dollar mistake every year. Like it had to be a million dollar screw up or you weren't swinging at the fences. You weren't trying hard enough. You weren't being bold. And we we felt we did not have time to make small improvements. We needed to try radical ideas that Mm -hmm. might be good or weren't. And so my work a lot was on the social aspect, the social networking, Facebook was new. We knew social media was gonna be a big deal but the question was, we don't know how big. We don't know how to do it. We just have a sense of that. If we're right, it will be big and important. If we're wrong, I don't know. The The win is so big that it was worth what we felt three years of experimentation and then make a hard decision at the end of that period. And mm-hmm. that was what we did. And we killed. We had an internal social network at Netflix for many years, and we killed it because it was... It wasn't growing as fast as the rest of the market was, which meant to us, there are people who do social things, but most people don't. And what people actually value is simplicity. So let's simplify and take out things, even though it's going to piss off some of our users, it's going to make all the new users happy. And in fact, maybe that's the last thing I would say that was the most important thing I got out of product and everything there, Mm -hmm. which is people tend to think about their current customer base as sacrosanct. And we're going to talk to our customers and we're going to learn from them and make them happier and happier and happier. And that, again, that's great if you have a very stable, large audience. But if you're growing, you have a million customers and you want to have five million, that means there's four million people who do not use your product today and Instead of asking the 1 million who do use it how to make it better, you need to ask the 4 million who don't use it why they're not using it and what they need. And what they need may not be the same as what the 1 million who, who are in there need, mm-hmm. and you need to be willing to upset the 1 million to get the 4 million. And that was a constant process at Netflix of sort of pissing off one group to build to the next group. And we only tested non-users or not only, but we we spent a great deal of energy testing the people who were not using the product or were just starting to use it so they didn't have any baggage and they would give us the clearest feedback.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and a lot of those strategies are contrary to what you learn from a lot of sales executives, but it, it's it's a great example of being a disruptive organization that had very unreasonable, kind of very lofty <laughs> goals that they yes. ultimately reached, right?
0: Yes. Was it our, a product, uh, I guess we were product managers, which was uh-huh. traditionally an MBA kind of position at a company. It's business right. and it's creative. And the experiment they took with me and one other guy was, let's not hire MBAs. Let's try people who, uh, who understand business, who understand right. movie, have deep movie knowledge, yep. and see what they would do. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete radical experiment. I, I was okay. I learned a ton. The other guy who I was with, uh, uh, Todd, exploded. Like he's been there for 20 years. He practically runs the organization. It was the right decision. It was a great decision, but it was unpopular. I mean, it was, it was kind of left brain thinking, you know, Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the culture in terms of the decisions going against consensus, because as a leader, you have to disregard consensus, uh, which is uh, sometimes, yeah. Right. Uh, Sometimes. So did you see a lot of that take place at Netflix uh, and, and those decisions that were made? I'd say yes, but it's not the way you think of it. They weren't going
0: against consensus. The way it was done was everybody was an independent operator. And so, for for example, on the product, on the, let's say the website, we're building how the website does something or what the audience were going for. Yeah. Quarterly, we would have these review meetings with the officers of the company. So we are directors. Yeah. There's yep. about five of us who run the product. And we would sit down in a, in a little theater that had... Reed and Ted and Pat, the CMO, the chief content officer, like every, all the officers sitting around and they would Socratically debate with you on stage, why you were doing something, how you were interpreting that test result. Why were you thinking that way? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And they're yelling at you and you're yelling back and people are crying and it's very hard, but they did not want you to do what they said. They wanted you to make sure you were resolute in your own decision. We were the, pro- the experts. They yes. had domain expertise that we should get mm-hmm. feedback from, but they would let you go if you just did what they said. They would let you go if you just did what everybody was feeling was the predominant thing. Your mm-hmm. job was to be the expert and to tell them why we're going this way. And you needed to have, you know, I've, I've heard all of you. I've thought about it and Mm -hmm. I'm going to go the opposite way. And if you were right, you got a ton of cred there, which gave them, they like gave you more slack going forward because you had that instinct. If you were wrong and you disregarded their input a lot, eventually you would lose your job, but it wasn't that they, you needed to convince them. You just needed to make sure you heard everything and were making good decisions. So there was no consensus building really.
1: Yeah, I see. That's great insight, there, Michael. Because I think that is what really differentiates this company that embraces this friction of ideas. Because you know, leaders who are who are unable to manage friction of ideas uh, ultimately result in friction of people. That's how Eleanor Angelidis referred to uh, that you know kind of diversity and the beauty and brainstorming and different backgrounds. Um, She's she was the first global di- diversity director at amazon and mm-hmm. so that's what that reminds me of that experience at netflix you just mentioned
0: it was it was it, it was um an interesting culture in that sense you know yeah, it yeah, was a really it really encouraged i mean the thing that we valued at the company there was a short list you've probably seen the culture deck that was created at, at the company mm-hmm. uh, there were values that we wanted to have at the business. And, And I will say this, when the company started, you could say that we were in the film business, the film technology distribution, movie watching business, but I would say the officers of the organization all had a second important agenda, which is how do you build a company that doesn't suck when it gets big? E- Startups are fun and exciting and everyone, there's right. a lot of energy. And then as they get bigger, they're boring and more abundant and there's a lot of rules and it's not fun. So what happened between point A and point B and, the, and they worked tirelessly to figure out how not to be that crappy big company when they were a cool small company. And part of that was these values. And one of the values was, you know, I want great teammates. I wanna work with people who are great. Um, I want hard problems to solve. Right. And I want to be treated like an adult. You know, I work all the time. I'm passionate about this. Don't treat me like a child. And, and so one of the ways that they chose to make it a better and better place is to remove rules that made everyone feel more empowered, more autonomous, which makes it fun to be there. And they lived the story honestly. So if somebody. They would never promote someone who didn't totally embrace those values because you're sending mixed signals to your staff like you tell me honesty is important but that guy's a jerk and was always lying to me and i guess if you promoted him you don't really care that much about that rule right And, and so very sincerely you know they believed in no brilliant jerks you know if someone is difficult to work with it doesn't matter how good they are it takes away from the joy of being there and that's not tolerable and and they lived it and mm-hmm. you know we talked a lot of enron had those had words emblazoned in their lobby that said honesty integrity whatever yes. yeah. it's like writing it in stone in your lobby doesn't make it true who you hire who you fire who you promote that is your culture and that's that was what netflix did very well
1: uh, yeah i agree with you 100% now, let's shift gears to some of the other companies that you've worked in and also uh, started yourself. You, you have a lot of experience, right? In many different startups. Uh, tried, you know, I try. And every every
0: book, every startup mm-hmm. is a start. Like everything's a startup. Once you go back to yeah. zero, they're all little businesses of different sizes. And I've never right. been too concerned about how big the opportunity was. I just wanted there to be um, the odds of success were good and that there was an interesting market and I wanted to do that project. So when I'd write books, I was identifying a market need. It, wasn't, it never had anything to do with something I knew about. It was me identifying, uh, like I wrote a book on video games, the first book on video games in 1982. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about video games and I knew nothing about writing books, but I had identified a market. And the only way for a, an 18 year old, for me in college, to capitalize on what I felt certain was the future was to write a book that would surf that. Some kids would go and make their own video game if they were engineers. Some kids would mm-hmm. quit college and start a company. But my ex- my way to, to deal with that was to write a book about it. And I did that a couple of times in my career. When I, when I got out of a job, uh, when I left Lucasfilm and left the filmmaking, I wrote a book about how to do what I was doing, self-published it, at the time, because that seemed like the way the best way to make money and treated it like a the startup, you know, caught new industry.
1: I think, I uh, suspect that uh, a lot of your studies and your degree in neuroscience has something to do with that neuroplasticity that you have and that adaptability that you've applied through in your career. Do, do did, did you agree uh, about that? How have you utilized some of what you've learned and how you observe other people? You do know, you think- I... i don't know that i'm great at it i i
0: think that my strength partly is i'm sort of even when i was young i was kind of a grumpy old man you know (laughs) i you know you look at the market you look at a product and you you say here's a pen and a lot of people just use the pen and a grumpy person would be like why does it do that like why is it like oh interesting it's so irritating that it does this thing why and And then you start researching it. Like, why why doesn't anyone make pens that do such and such? And, you know, if you do that all the time, you're always kind of grumpy about products and feel like people are missing market opportunities. If you really have a ton of confidence that like, I can see the future, I know like that pen would be way better. Then you need to decide, is it worth my time? Is anyone thinking about it? You know, execution is everything, you know, not just the idea, but can I do it? But I would do that all the time. I think I have sort of an abnormal unhealthy level of self-confidence. And if I think that the pen could be better if it was green and no one makes green pens, I might just go make green pens, you know, just, (laughs) just, just because. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So I'm not sure I'm great at, uh, working with building teams, the kinds of stuff that a lot of entrepreneurs are great at building, building that I I prefer to, um, I just get very enthusiastic about the stuff that I think I see in the future, mm-hmm. and I discovered young that I can be very persuasive. Like my skill set is that I'm a little naive and very persuasive. So when when products are new, when ideas are new, and I get excited about them, I just talk about them and I convince mm-hmm. people, and I convinced people to get into buying hundreds of thousands of dollars of editing equipment because the world was going digital, and I convinced them to this and like. But it's not from a sales point of view. It's just from a almost a childish, enthusiastic point of view.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I work in the pharmaceutical industry for many years, 16 years, a doctor of pharmacy, postdoc in medical education publications. But I have a lot of various different interests, right? Personal interests that... Most recently, now I'm also rediscovering, uh, sharing as well with those I mentor and I coach. And so one of the things that I wanted to always do was to learn different languages. So I learned Italian, but the, the insp- inspiration from that came from movies, from films, uh, subtitled movies, Italian subtitle movies that I would actually stop uh, and then get a dictionary, try to translate them, and that's how I kind of taught myself that. So I do have to ask you about some of your insights, or any stories you have from when uh, when you were at, you know in, in film, when you helped edit film, uh, write. Yeah, you know, you, you you've, you've done some screenplay writing, I believe, right? I, yeah,
0: I'm not the screenwriter. My brother is an oh. actual oh. screenwriter, and he's he's gifted. Um, I write yeah. because like. I like media and I like communicating and I, and I'm okay, you know, but uh, like to have a career as a writer, it's like having a career as anything. Like it's, it's more than just being good at it. There's a lot to it. Um, but I, but I will speak to the film, the film thing. I, I loved working in movies. I love movies. I mean, I've always been like the movie guy and um, working with Bertolucci was like a distinct, you know, real joy. Um I I mean, I got to meet you know Antonioni and all these like uh, unbelievable people. Yeah. So the le- the le- here's here's my lesson, my best lesson from Bertolucci and from that project, and it was really from Gabriella Cristiani who was the editor of the, of the Sheltering Sky. She was also the won the Oscar for The Last Emperor. She's a mm-hmm. wonderful editor. So there's a, the opening scene of the movie, um, and we're cutting it on a computer. And Bertolucci, unlike almost every other director in Hollywood, shoots the entire movie and they don't start editing until they're done shooting, which is unheard of. Every other film ever done, they shoot out of order, they start cutting because they'll never be done in time if they start wait till they're done. And they won't know if they have missed anything if they Uh aren't starting to try to put it together. They don't do that. They all go go out to Morocco, they shoot their movie, they come, they have like a vacation, then they come back to London and then they start with scene one. So it's very early in the process. I'm very excited that Bertolucci is there and the computer makes it possible to have multiple versions of something which wasn't possible on film. So I asked that first day, can I take a shot at the opening scene? Can I just try it? Would you guys mind? And the opening scene of Vittorio Storaro, who's one of the great cinematographers of history has shot About 45 minutes of basically a boat coming to shore. That's what it is. They get off of a big cruise ship. They're on a little boat. It comes to shore. He's got 45 minutes of gorgeous, gorgeous material. The sun sparkling on the water and all that. Okay, so I am excited, and it should take. And the final scene will be about two minutes long out of 45 minutes. So they go away, and I work all night cutting this. And I've and they're you know I cut it down to about. Thirty seconds, maybe forty-five seconds. I feel like I've done a great job. There's maybe eight shots. They get off the boat. They're paddling in,
1: right?
0: And uh, and the next morning, they Bernardo and Gabriela come in and they look at the stuff. And Bernardo looks at me after I run it. I'm very excited, and he's like, "What are you, an idiot?" I'm like, "Oh God, no!" <laughs> you know what's wrong? He's like, "I gave you the best footage." ever made by the greatest cinematographer ever who lived. Right. You could, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. All you needed was one shot, one five second shot. You just needed to pick. What did you do? You gave me like 10 shots. You couldn't even decide what you wanted. Uh-huh. Ah. And so he walks out. I'm like, I'm not crying, but I'm definitely shaken. Right. And the lesson, that, and Gabriella kind of leans over and is talking to me. And at one point she's like, you gotta remember that editing is not throwing out bad things. Editing is throwing out good things to make the remaining things better. Hmm. And that was a life-changing moment because it it applied across film and business and product that the question isn't, is this thing good? That's the wrong question to ask. Of course it's good. Every one of those shots by Storaro was good. The question is, do I need all of that? And if I just chose one, is it better than choosing three? Mm-hmm. That happened at Netflix when we had ten, We had seven tabs across the top of the screen. You could buy used DVDs. You could hang out with other people. You could see new releases, right? And yeah. we tested and, and every, each one of those tabs had its own sort of product person sort of testing it and making sure people liked it and trying to increase usage. But no one was stepping back at 10,000 feet and saying, there are seven tabs there. If we have, what happens if we just have four tabs? What happens if we just have two tabs? I don't even care what the tabs are, just fewer tabs. And what we discovered is that simplicity sells. The fewer tabs we had, no matter what the tabs did, increased retention, which was our ultimate metric at Netflix in those days. And so that was another example that sometimes, you know people ask the wrong questions. And I try to go back to first principles, which is simplicity is the right thing, less is more. And sometimes you gotta throw out things you love to make the remaining thing better.
1: Speaking of editing, uh, you know I'm a big fan of Scott Belsky and the book, Messy Middle. You know I consider yeah. the Messy Middle, the, the Bible, the business Bible. How he was able to just scale Behance you know, before it was sold to Adobe. What was uh, some of your experience at Adobe? Um, um, Adobe was different. So
0: I will say, so Scott arrived while I was there. Mm-hmm. He left while I was there and they dragged him back just as, I was, just as I had left. So he had left Adobe and then came back in his current role. Yeah. Um, I think Scott is great. He was the best, the best thing that happened to Adobe. I, I honestly feel that way. Um, I had trouble in Adobe. I'm not great in giant Borg-like companies. And my role at Adobe was to be sort of leading innovation. And Mm -hmm. so the question is, how does a giant organization like Adobe innovate? And I was embedded with the research group and I, you know, and I loved working with them and their research is phenomenal, but Adobe doesn't really innovate as a culture. Adobe grows by acquisition, they are the board mm-hmm. almost literally, I see. you know, they don't want to take those risks. They don't want to do that stuff. They want, I mean, they try some stuff, but I don't believe it's the core of their, their, of the company's value. They really would prefer to just to let everybody else slug it out. And when they find the winner, they go grab them and then pull them in. And the company has to figure out how to, you know, incorporate that into the organization. Mm-hmm. I don't really like that. And certainly as a person in charge of innovation, you know, I was trying to make a case that, you know, we need to be able to release fast and dirty and try things out and see if they work and close it down. And everyone's super excited that that's how you do it. That's the modern way to innovate products. And then it reaches the highest level of the organization. And they're like, well, we're not gonna release an Adobe product that isn't good. Like you need to do six months of testing on that thing and and have a market release of the product. And and we're saying, no, no, it's not gonna be good. It's gonna be buggy. And it, we're not doing any marketing. We've got to find out before we pimp it. We wanna know if it's good. And I don't think Adobe was particularly good at that. And I didn't like being in a culture as an innovator like that. They, mm-hmm. I, I helped a little bit with the thinking about subscription services. i just come out of Netflix and I didn't think Adobe was new at figuring out how to, how to create the, the subscription way they were going to approach business. Yeah. But I didn't think there was a good, like, product market fit between me and Adobe. I have um, great respect for the organization, and of course, I'm glad that Scott is there because he's amazing. But I, it wasn't where I wanted to be. I, I prefer small startups.
1: Uh, so, uh, you know, your current project, Droid Maker, uh, mm-hmm. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, what are you currently involved?
0: With? My current project is actually so Droid Maker. Droidmaker was my book about Lucas and Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a labor of love. Like I had always, I thought someone would write about Lucasfilm and Pixar and no one ever did. Like by 2005, as the, la- the third of the, the new trilogy was going to roll out, I thought someone should have written this book and they never did. So I had to write it. And so that was Droidmaker. Um, my current work is largely in photography. I feel that every human has a camera. Uh, of course, every human has a camera now, which is in the billions. And so therefore it should be a renaissance in the photographic industry, but it isn't quite happening the way I like. People have the cameras, but they don't know anything about photography. And it reminds me when everyone had camcorders in the, in, at the turn of uh, around 2000, but they didn't know anything about filmmaking they just had a camera. So they would shoot lousy stuff. It couldn't be edited because it wasn't shot well. They didn't know how to use the editing tools particularly. Mm-hmm. And so there were just sort of clips of video, but there wasn't really movie making. I think that there's a there is an opportunity to really educate people about photography and more than just the, you know, the little snapshot you take, but to take pictures that we like more and to to, edu- to, to evangelize that for consumers. So I'm Fully moved. I I had a business called Neo Modern in Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, which I closed during COVID. It was about three years old, and I, I just couldn't confront the what was happening in retail. It was a bricks and mortar retail business on where people walked into the gallery with a phone. Our staff were experts at Photoshop. We edited their pictures with them sitting there. We printed them large on archival printers. We custom matted and framed them and they were done in 30 minutes. So they literally walked in with their phone and walked out with a beautiful framed picture of their own. I loved that, but my interest in it was not the gallery. It was putting it online so people could have that experience online. And I couldn't quite get there before COVID killed the gallery. And so what my pivot has been is just to focus on the photographic education. So I am now kind of what I did when I left Adobe was just trying to settle into my life as a photographer, as an educator, evangelist, collector, and product designer of people are making products about photography. But I'm really starting to specialize in that. And hopefully I'll, I'll stay on that course for a while. You never know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That's very, very interesting. Uh, You know, I'm really fascinated by uh, so many different paths that you've taken and uh, how you have managed to just merge the analytic uh, skills with uh, your creativity, innovation, and just uh, upskilling throughout, you know, consistently. I want to ask you this question about, uh, you know, when really you are most inspired to innovate or to learn, because I know that, you know, some poets, writers, musicians, philosophers, they're often most inspired or when they're challenged right at their, when they're in, 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 when they face a lot of difficulty, Mm -hmm. what has been the source and reward of your photography and work in general? Wow. That's a good question. Um, I agree that
0: some of the best art comes out of that pain, right? You're, right, you're yeah. transmuting, you're, you're, you're processing your pain, your anguish, your sadness, whatever it is. Yeah. And instead of just sitting around moping, you channel it into some sort of creative thing. And, and I do that as well. I've often felt that I've never become the artist I really wanted to be because I don't have enough pain in my life. Like I'm a little bit, the business side of my life has done very well. And so it's hard to really feel the level of angst that you know, a lot of great artists like descend to, but again, I try not to judge too much. And I create because I can't not create. It's, it comes from a place of uh, like, I don't know how, I don't know what what life would be if I wasn't just making things and trying to make them in different media, whether it's a company or a book or a, a chair or a logo or a photograph, they're all coming from the same place of just, keeping my mind active and being curious about stuff. It is true that like when things get really lousy, like during the shelter in place stuff or when my company closed or after my stroke or any, any yeah. of that, those moments, mm-hmm. it is true that the, the creativity uh, is fertile because you're just, you're, you, it's nice in a weird way. It's nice to hit rock bottom. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, like there's no, what happens is you no longer have the fear of failure because you're already like, whatever, just, I, can, yeah. I can't, I can't have any worse stuff happen. So I'm going to do this thing. And right, right. And, and this, the key to success is really just getting up at bat to keep getting yeah. up every day and trying again. It doesn't matter if you succeed or fail. As I said, at Netflix, the metric wasn't whether we succeeded the metric was whether we were making try where we were trying big things. So I try to remember that to just yeah, when yeah. I think when I think I can't think of another creative idea. I've had my best ideas already. I'm never going to come up with something. I surprise myself. I'm like, oh well, that's well, that's good. I like that. That was a good idea. Yeah. I guess I I believe now that maybe it is, if not an unending well, uh, as some authors say, the genius isn't something you are. It's something you have it kind of it comes to you and then it goes away it's not you you're not the genius you're just a vessel and i like to try to make myself a vessel for great things to happen and i don't take it personally if they screw up and i don't take it personally if they're super awesome like it's it's not mm-hmm. all me
1: Yeah, some of the best musicians, I think that's how they refer to their talents, their, you know, God-given talents that they have. uh, They refer to it as being the vessel of the the instrument. I get it.
0: I get it. I can't tell you how often I've taken a photograph and I look at the picture and I think, I don't know where that, I don't know how I, I love the picture and I can't believe I did that. I don't even know how I did it. I couldn't do it again if you asked me. Like yeah. okay. And and the fact that it happens repeatedly, like, oh, another one. Oh, that's amazing. Like I've now at least relaxed into the idea that it can happen, that it's not the last one. But I don't know how it happens. I don't know why that picture is different and better than
1: that one. Those of you who are listening uh, to all our coach to this episode <laughs> here, uh, just take a look at some of the photos and some of uh, the creative work from Michael Rubin. Because from my perspective, uh, they, there's a message, there's an emotion, there's a, a, there's life that uh, that you convey in a lot of your work, the photographs that I, I see, you know, from my Thank you. Uh, perspective. So, so I've I've been uh, truly inspired, you know, by kind of learning a little bit more about photography. Uh, I think that photography can and can also change how you think, right? Because how you th- how you think can be changed by how you see right you need to change how you think in order to change how you see things so as an entrepreneur probably you've you've had that uh, enthusiasm which is clear uh like winston churchill says uh success is just going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm and and (laughs) that's what i love you know uh, from you as, as i hear you telling these stories it's clear. And, and you've gone actually from success to success without losing enthusiasm, it seems no, like. There's, Not just, there's, there's, there's failures in the middle there. Don't, right don't there.
0: <laughs> you know, We tend to remember the high points, but I try to remember the low points, too. Um, yeah. you know, I, I want to add in a small anecdote. It's something I, I observed in college, and it stuck with me for all these years. Uh, and the idea is brachiation. So brachiation is sort of the way that primates move through trees. They swing Uh through trees, and it's that kind of locomotion is known as brachiation. Uh And what I learned in college was that there's a couple forms of it. There's sort of semi-brachiation is what sort of old world apes do, old world monkeys, uh, chimpanzees, where they swing like Tarzan, and they don't let go of a vine until they got the next vine in their hand, and they and they like monkey bars, right? You see, everyone see that. And in my life, that's how I kind of lived, which is um, I didn't let go of the last thing till I had the next one. I didn't break up with someone till I'd met the next person. I didn't quit my job till I found the next idea. And they tell you to stay with it till you have sort of security. It's totally safe. It's totally smart. We are descended from those apes and, or, you know, we have common ancestors and it makes sense to me that we semi-brachiate, but there are full brachiating primates, the spider monkeys and gibbons swing in, in, you know, new world monkeys in they swing and then they let go and they fly through the air and then they grab something much farther away on the other side. And because of that, they are, have prehensile feet. They can grab with their feet and they have a prehensile tail. So it's like they have five appendages that are equally good at grabbing. So when they let go and they fly through the air, it's dangerous but they're highly skilled at catching something and, and deciding as they go, what they're gonna catch. They're not mm-hmm. playing it safe. I always aspired to be a full brachiator. I always loved it when i meet someone who would say, oh, I just quit that job, it sucked. And I think, mm-hmm. really? And you don't have a job now? You're just like unemployed? Like, <laughs> it felt like the right way to at least try to be very often. I could feel, and so I can feel when I'm moving through things that I don't want to let go because I don't know what I'm going to grab next. And at this point in my life and career, I've now tried to feel like I'm a spider monkey and that I have great skills at catching something and I shouldn't be so afraid. Like you still want security, but I now much more will let go and not know what's on the other side and just fly through the air. And that's sort of my practice. I like to. I also think, I mean, it's not totally related, but like, I feel like i'm always moving pieces down the board that's the kind of my mental metaphor and when i hit an obstacle moving one piece i just move start moving another piece like i don't Mm -hmm. get hung up that i've hit an obstacle there and and so if that's one maybe that's a that first piece is a product design of some photo product and i'm moving it down and now negotiations have stalled or they're waiting to raise money I try not to be sitting around. I just go to another piece and like, well, let's move the podcast forward for a while. Let's move, mm-hmm. let's write a book for a while. Like I yeah. just, and and when I hit sort of writer's block on the book and I can't, and I'm beating my head against the wall, I just take a breath and let go and go back to like photography or product or something that will, it just moves the pieces around. And then it suddenly solutions hit, happen, whether time has passed or whether I have new insight, I'm not always sure. Mm-hmm. but um, you know, that, that's how I approach that kind of stuff and, and again I also think that I don't think anyone in business is candid with themselves honest with themselves how much luck is involved with stuff and I'm not saying success is luck yeah. I'm saying that um, six, playing a game whether you're writing a book or starting a company is kind of like roulette you know you've got 40 40 little dots on the wheel and you spin it and the and the, and the casino makes money because the odds are a tiny bit in their favor. And so if they just do it all day, they win enough. They win more than they lose. And the odds are against you, although you might randomly win. But as an entrepreneur, I'm covering over spots on that roulette wheel. Like if I have a great team, that's one spot. If I have great technology, if, there, if the law changed and suddenly is favoring me, none of those things alone make a win. Uh, and you have to... Kind of do that. But at the end of the day, you still are spinning it. You just have moved the odds from being slightly in the casino's favor to being more dominantly in your favor. You mm-hmm. still might lose. But if you keep getting up and spinning the wheel, eventually, like the casino, you will win more than you lose. And I think that's all you can really hope for in business is that you set yourself up, you move all the pieces in the best way possible. And when you roll the dice, it doesn't really matter whether it wins or loses. It matters that you just keep doing it because if you do it enough after 40 odd years, your wins outpace your losses. Yeah. if you do right.
1: Yeah, and that wind of luck can kind of blow your way. It can.
0: It can, yeah. but you can make it the odds a little bit better. May
1: the odds be in your favor?
0: They're never perfect. And like people look at Netflix all the time, but, but Netflix is very, and you know, Reed says this all the time. He's quick to point out. Like we did everything we could in early 2000s, but if Blockbuster had done something different that we didn't control, it would have gone a different way. So yeah. was it our genius or was it just luck that the laws changed or the Blockbuster was stupid or this or that? It's, you know, we ended up winning. And so you can, in hindsight, you can say we were smart, but I think everyone understands there's so many moments of lucky things that made it possible for that to work.
1: Yeah. Michael, uh, as a photographer who is able to observe, who has very you know, keenly, right, observe nature, people around, uh, when you analyze your next step in life or in your career, do you think of lists, categories, or do you think of spectra, just like the spectra of the light, for example? Ah, uh, that's interesting. I'm not sure maybe I know
0: what all of those things might exactly mean, but I would say that I try to go to a place of beginner's mind where I'm I'm not bringing too much to it. I know I've got a lot of life experience. And so you feel like, oh, you bring a lot to the table when you do this. But And I do, I kind of alternate a, superimposing that on the thing, but I also remove it and try to see something fresh, uh, like a baby and like, and and be in touch with how i feel about it you know that, that that's what i'm kind of basing stuff on um lists i'm trying to think what the, each of those might mean i do when i was deciding to move to santa fe i just moved to santa fe after 30 years in the bay area right and it was more of a full brachiation kind of moment like i let go i don't even it seems so irrational i built so much and had was like the platform was up here already in san francisco why am I starting again? Like meeting people, building companies and all that. It was like, I I don't really know. I I had lists. I had kind of figured all the pros and cons and weighed all these things out. But at the end of the day, I felt, I feel that those lists were just me rationalizing. There was something I really wanted to do. And now I was trying to decide if I could prove it to myself that it made, it was logical. Mm -hmm. And in some way that is a Um, a little bit of a cheat because, you know, data and, and, you know, you can prove anything you want with statistics, right? They say that. So I try to be in touch with, you know what? I really want to do this thing. So yes, I can find lots of reasons to do it. I can find lots of reasons not to do it. It's not like you're weighing them out. I just want to make sure that the reasons I'm doing it seem like good reasons. You know, (laughs) it's a good risk and i'm up for it that's about the most you can say and i would say with any startup i kind of go into that process of recognizing when i'm using the lists and the data to convince myself that i'm that i should do the thing i want to do does that
1: make sense yeah yeah and i think you you have that creativity that you channel somehow where which you have proven already that allows you to create those exceptions right Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you're listening to your
0: mentees or you're listening to people, uh what you hear sometimes is you, I mean, you can hear what they really want things to be like, you know, they're telling you, I'm trying to decide if I should take this job. And it's like, like you, you can kind of step back and you hear it in their voice. Like you want that job. You want to do that. And, and there's no way you're going to get data that will tell you conclusively you should do that or not do that. So stop looking for that. There is no data that will conclusively prove it. I will anything you say, I can give you an opposite point. But what I hear is that you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a smart risk. So, yeah. That's that's my men- mentoring <laughs> instead yeah. of it.
1: Yeah, the the reason why I also was inspired to ask you that and uh, was because uh, as I teach and as I coach, uh, because I'm passionate about teaching as well and educating, I've learned to in- rely on visuals more. So I have a you know board that I use here in my office or what I call my studio. Like a, like a mind map where you're yeah, like... Drawing- yeah, yeah the mind or just a s- simple whiteboard that I use where uh, I try to create... I, I have spectra or lines, diagrams that I rely on more than, let's say, lists. Because yes, some of the lists like... Okay. Six tips to be be influencing without authority. They're great. They can catch, they follow that format or that algorithm, right? That can grab some attention. But ultimately when you search a little bit deeper, when you talk about something like feedback, for example, feedback is anywhere from criticism to praise, right? So I created this spectrum where uh, I argued that it's it's ultimately helpful to receive criticism as long as you dissect it into different parts. Uh, as long as you separate it from the author of it, you know, the problem is no feedback because no feedback leads to no growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, whether, Whereas, you know, feedback, all kinds of feedback is good. It just falls somewhere along that spectrum. So that's recently I rely more on spectra that I discuss in non-categorical terms when I teach or I'll give you another example from, uh, failure right analysis of failure uh, you can hold a grudge somewhere right so I drew a uh, a fist right and then I draw a line where you have it's a go it's converted into a handshake this is the analysis that you make in 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 life from your failure from your past failures those grudges that you have, that you have to analyze them, spend a long time to analyze and focus on them before you're you're then forgive yourself and forgive that other person so that you can prevent future mistake. That's the same, and then you fail at something new, and in and this ever continuous cycle, this three F cycle: say, fail, they, focus, forgive.
0: Don't they say that this life is just failing at bigger, harder and harder, and bigger and bigger things? Like that's yeah. the goal
1: yeah I, yeah so I, I, that's what that's why i asked you that question with my long-winded kind of explanation there you know was uh yeah i was inspired by that and it's it seemed it's it's clear it's, it's clear that you're i think also uh you know you, you you're using you're challenging the norms of the, the regular lists and boxes that people like to categorize things in and that's I what i really uh, i don't I don't like thinking about stuff as failure.
0: It's just like, I don't find a lot of use in that categorization. There's just, that didn't work and I'm gonna keep doing it. It, It's only bad if it stops you in your tracks, but if you keep working through it and try other stuff, you know, to me, it's more like a practice. If I was taking pictures or even, I I talk a lot about the Zen arts. My my, My new curriculum in photography is that photography is a Zen art and mm-hmm. learn from Enso and Ikebana and haiku and these, these other art forms. And Enso is a calligraphy art form and you're drawing a circle. And you, it's a practice. You just do it a lot until you do it more comfortably and you like it or don't like it. And haiku is a practice. They just write them. I like to think of business and f- photographs and all those things as just a practice in your life. You have an idea, you know how to execute it. It could be small. It could be selling cookies at the at the fair, but it's still an entrepreneurial practice. I think I can exert energy and make money doing it and have fun doing it. It could be a, writing a book. It could be starting a business, a, a small business, and it could be starting a huge company. But in each case, instead of making it such a monster thing in your mind that you failed at because it didn't come out the way you thought, instead it's like, the outcomes are are infinite there's a million possible outcomes it, what i found is that i imagine how great it would be if this thing succeeds and i also imagine how horrible my life will be when it fails and what i've come to recognize is that it's never the extremes it's always some other thing i hadn't thought of it's it didn't fail that way it didn't succeed that way it's just like here and now what do i do with it here do i and I make a new decision about it so I really push back when people feel like they failed at something. I think that's a not a useful construct.
1: Yeah, yeah. You remind me of uh, Domenico Modugno's song "Meraviglioso," where he tells a great story in the lyrics of this song, uh, intended to lift this person who's about to fall off a bridge and just to come, you know, because uh-huh. he's so de- he's in such despair. And there's an angel that comes in and just tells him that your despair is actually someone else's happiness somewhere else. So it's all relative. And, you know, your positivity is just clear. That's what's been uh, prob- probably, I, th- I think, has been essential to your a lot of the success that you've had in your career. I think that uh, people will, will listen to it on in our, in our episode from our discussion here and take cool. away, I think. Um, yeah i'm i'm just uh truly also fascinated fascinated by the fact that you've you've met michelangelo antonioni bernardo bertolucci and i'll ask you some of your insights afterwards but uh you know from the silent movies these black and white right and uh films that still nevertheless tell a story but is there one timeless lesson or tip that you'd like to share before we conclude our discussion here with the, all our coach listeners.
0: Oh man. Well, I, I mean, I think I've, I think I've probably laid out some of my, the most important things to me uh, as far that I've picked up along the way, not being afraid to try stuff like, and, and to get, I mean, the positivity for me comes from a, a sort of naivete and I don't think it's, I don't think your noviceness, the lack of experience is a detraction. I think it's often an asset. So when a lot of people look at what's going on in their world and they feel like, I don't know anything about that. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that. And I think the difference for me has always been everything always seems sort of doable when I'd meet Bertolucci or George Lucas or any of these people, Mm -hmm. like, I guess the thing you start to recognize is God, they really are just people and they are just sort of flawed and trying things. And Sometimes they've had great success early on, which gives them confidence. But you can have confidence without that early success. You could just be naturally confident. And I have that sort of uh, irrational self-confidence and it can be very useful, particularly when you're new at stuff. You just try it. Uh, Look at those kids on skateboards who do these tricks over and over collapsing, right. crashing. Right. Like I would never do it. I would be, I, all I can imagine is all the pain and right. yet they do it. They push through it and then they nail it, the trick, and then they get the feeling for what it feels like. I would say visualize what success feels like, and then just start feeling that success.
1: That's like, Yeah. Thank you. That's a perfect way to end, uh, end this conversation that I know will continue next time you have a project and you have a book. So I'll thank back. you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thank very, you're always welcome to be a guest on All Out Coach. Thank you for inviting me on. It's great to talk. I hope this is helpful. It's helpful and it's inspiring. Thank you so much, Michael. Great.